Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Almost Heretical. It's Nate, and Shelby is here as well. I'm a former pastor, and Shelby is a Bible scholar, and we're committed to reclaim the Bible and revolutionize Christianity as we know it. You're about to listen to our conversation with Peter Rollins. Peter is a philosopher and theologian, and in this conversation, he sets the philosophical backdrop that explains a bit of the deconstruction movement. Peter challenges us to rethink our understanding of faith, doubt, and the divine, offering a fresh perspective on what it means to engage with our beliefs critically. Now, just a heads up that this conversation gets a bit philosophical. Some of you will love that. For others, like me, you may skip around and find bits that are helpful. And that's okay, too. So here's our conversation with Peter Rollins. We've been doing this show for six years now. And when we started out, it was kind of like the term deconstruction wasn't even really being thrown around that much. And that's obviously been uh, just completely blown up over the last few years on people on both sides, people that are talking about how harmful deconstruction is, the the childresses of the world that are talking about the harm there. And then, um, and then others who are finding a lot of like community, I guess, and uh, just help around this um, this topic of changing your faith and evolving in what you believe and leaving some things behind, right? And so I know that you are at the forefront of talking about those things, but I'm curious if we could go back a bit. Um, I'm sure you've shared your story a lot, but just like a 30,000 foot view, mm-hmm. where did you like grow up in church or when did, when did you kind of like decide like, I'm going to be a Christian? When did that start for you? If, if that did, <laughs> I don't even want to presume things here, but wh- what was your, um, your relationship with Christianity? And then Rachel Held Evans, when she was on the show, she, I've used, I've stolen this and used it a lot. This idea of the cracks that you first started to see in some of the things that you believe, what were some of those first cracks? You know, a little known fact is that my PhD is actually in deconstruction, <laughs> wow. uh, or what, oh. what's called post-structuralism is, is the academic term. Mm. And the funny thing is I've heard that within the church, this notion of deconstruction is quite popular now and has been for many years. I don't know much about it, but I, I'm interested as to whether it's uh, deconstructive and post-structuralist in the way that we use that word in, the, in philosophy or if it's something different. And I get the feeling it's the same word, but it's mm-hmm. actually quite different. So maybe we can kind yeah, of talk about that at some stage. Yeah. But, but I'm from Belfast, born and bred. You can see it in the background there. I actually lived in America for about 12 years, maybe slightly more. And I've just come home to Belfast for a year, maybe a few years. I'm sure I'll end up back in America at some point. And, you know, I didn't have either an academic background or a religious background at all, really. Um my entry into the world of uh, Christianity was when I was 17 and I had what would be often called a religious experience, an event. Mm-hmm. Right. The, the way I would describe it now is quite different from how I would have described it then, but I would say it was a, a, a decentering event. Uh, it completely uh, reconfigured my moral, cultural uh, landscape. And I actually then entered into uh, a 
evangelical charismatic church for a while and started to explore these these matters around faith in that environment that also got me to read and to think at first only reading to back up my views i kind of learned all these ideas and then i kind of wanted to justify them so i started reading and studying philosophy to try to be a better apologist i guess but in that process of reading and reflecting the life of faith kind of took a deeper a different kind of turn so that was when i was 17. Um, i've had kind of three events in my life i would say 17 was when i kind of gave up everything for god uh 27 was when i gave up everything including god uh and maybe 37 was whenever i kind of reimagined i re-understood how that giving up of god is the experience of god so i mean roughly speaking i you know it's very i've simplified it very much there but it has every decade kind of had a had a, a vental dimension to it. So anyway, that's that's in a nutshell. If you want to ask me any questions about that, far ahead. But that's the least interesting stuff about me is my biography. <laughs> no, I like it. You almost there's like a little bit of Richard Rohr there, right? In the realizing that the giving up of God is actually finding some sort of uh, I can't remember the stages that Richard Rohr talks about. And there's listeners probably right now that are going saying them in their head or whatever. But uh, there's these yes. stages that you kind of have to go through, right? And that's um, kind of cool to see that you have those signposts there. Yeah, and I, I like a, a very central moment, just to briefly, I don't talk about this much, but it was an important moment for me, is I had a dream in which God told me that God didn't exist. And that, that was a really interesting dream. And uh, it stuck with me for a long time. And that's, that's very central to my work in radical theology, that... So if, if theism is affirmation, God exists, and atheism is uh, a rejection of that affirmation, God does not exist, so there is something, there is nothing, then radical theology is God is the name for that which does not exist. So the, the whole critique of atheism from a radical theology perspective is that it doesn't go far enough because it just, it just says there's nothing rather than nothing is something. Uh, and that's that's very very key to in psychoanalysis and continental philosophy existentialism. But that that idea that Simone Weil explores that God is the name for negation itself. God is the signifier of that which cannot be signified. Is a very interesting idea, not just within theology. In fact, I think theology lost its right to have very serious say in what that means but but theology did do it and in the scholastic tradition and the medieval tradition theology was very good at talking about that but anyway yes um yeah god is that god as the inexistent thing is uh is kind of a an insight that is very interesting okay so what you're saying is a little bit mind-boggling i think especially to the to the audience that maybe hasn't hasn't been as steeped in philosophy and hasn't had a PhD in this topic. So if you're going to break this down, like what does that practically mean on a level of personal spirituality or how, whatever you want to call it? But when you say God is the name for the negation of, of things, give us some practical, like what does that look like in your life? Yeah, that's very, very key because for me... Um you know, Christianity is, you know, first and foremost, a technology. Uh, you know, it's a liturgy, a technology of the self. It's a transformative 
events. You know, you go to this weird thing and you do this practice once a week or, you know, so um, what does this look like in practice? But maybe to begin with, uh, I would say that interestingly, even within, uh, you know, traditional theology, uh, God has always been to some extent seen as a signifier that signifies what cannot be signified, which makes it quite different from other signifiers or other names. So uh, Anselm famously defines God as that than which none greater can be conceived. And in the Proslogion, he kind of goes further to say, God is not the greatest conceivable being. Because if you imagine conceiving God, then you can conceive of something greater than that which is something beyond your ability to conceive. And if God is the greatest thing, and you can think of something greater than God, then you're in a contradiction. So Anselm defines God as not that which can be conceived, but that which uh, saturates conception, that which kind of overwhelms us, short circuits us. So already within the kind of theological tradition, you have this idea of a signifier that signifies what cannot be signified. Um, another way of saying this is it's a word that denominates itself. So it names something. So if you say God is love, you name it. But you also have to denominate it by saying, but not like I understand it. So that's a very, you know, basic mystical idea that there's a form of atheism within theology. Um, in fact, one of the most mm -hmm. radical forms of atheism is within theology, which is you have to always negate being atheist towards every positive conception of God, because that's an idol. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was, because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, he works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> So that's the kind of, you know, traditional sense of the term that, that's still very popular today. I mean, you get that notion in a lot of contemporary spirituality and, and religion. Now, I'm not quite saying that, but that's a, that's a kind of good background to kind of understand within a confessional way. What does it mean to say there is a word that defines something it isn't? But another way of thinking about it is the number zero. I mean, zero didn't exist for a long time, right? Of course it didn't exist. Why would we signify nothing? People started with one, one, two, three, four. Um, in fact, whenever zero was first invented, uh, some people thought it was demonic, it was evil, because wow. you were signifying nothingness. And if God is everything, if God lacks the lack, God is, uh, does not have privation, then zero names privation, it names the lack. So there was a theological dispute about uh, whether zero was, you know, a demonic kind of number. 
Um, But but the idea of signifying nothing uh, is quite interesting. And I just give one example, a contemporary example that maybe gets us to a, a, a maybe starting to see the practical use of this is an author like B. Young Chul Han, who wrote uh, Burnout Society and other very interesting books. He talks about, in a nutshell, we live in a society of pure productivity, uh, pure positivity, I should say, but, but also pure productivity. We live in a society of seize the day, you can do it, uh, kind of maximize your life, self-hack, right? So all of this information of you can do it, you can be who you want to be and et cetera, et cetera. And even spaces, even negative things, negative not being bad, but negative as spaces of negation are utilized for productivity. So for example, uh, you might have meditation rooms in Google or whatever, so you can go and sleep or meditate for half an hour, but it's so that you'll be more productive. Right. So, you know, have a holiday, do this, do that. But so is to be like whenever I moved to L.A., it was hilarious because uh, people can't even do drugs without having a positive effect, beating God or to improve their creativity. You know, it has to have some positive value. Like in Ireland, when we go out and get drunk, there's no positive value. Right. That was very central to religion. You have to have spaces of no value, which is what sacrifice is. You know, a sacrifice is the destruction of something without economy. Now, of course, you can think of economic things, I sacrificed for good weather, but technically this was a sacrifice with with no return, right? Which is called Mm. gift. Mm. The gift is a giving that has no return. Economy is you give something for something in return. But for Be Young Chil Han, we live in a society of pure positivity, and this actually breeds modern symptoms like fatigue and burnout and ADHD and lots of other symptoms, depression, melancholy, very modern symptoms, because there's no space of laziness. There's no virtue to nothing. We we actually Mm. can't even name it. We don't even have a space just to, to do nothing. So the idea of creating a space where you do nothing and where nothing is, is actually given meaning and depth is actually quite important, I think, for, on a purely existential level. That's one way of thinking about it in terms of you know, the society of pure positivity is we need a little bit of negation. And theology traditionally uh, offered spaces of, ne- of, of nothing. You know, space is not where you're free to be happy, but where you're free from the need to be happy. Uh, deserts wow. in the oasis, places mm-hmm. of absolute negation. Wow. That, it's interesting you brought up Google. I remember when I lived in San Francisco for a few years and I had friends that worked at Google. And so it was kind of fun. They would invite me to come have lunch with them or go see the cereal room or go see the nap room or the meditation room or the, yes. the gym, uh, the childcare area. And I'm, and I'm just, I remember thinking when I left, I was like, this is so cool. They're like, do you want to work here? And I just remember thinking like, it has everything. I'm like, it has everything because they expect you to be there the whole time. Your whole life yes. is Google. Right. Yes. So, also, you're you're supposed to like your job, which is horrific. Yep. In the, right, not only do you have to work for somebody, you have to like it. You have to wear, wear their t-shirts. I mean, that's a sign of an idiot. I mean, you're being exploited. If you work in a in a company, they're they're exploiting you, right? In the old days, you knew that, but you had to do it because you have to feed your kids and you have to you know bring home the work. And so you did it five days a week. You signed off at five and you forgot about your work. And at the weekend, you didn't think about it. Now you have to go to work, and as I say, you 
have to wear their t-shirt, have to go on their retreats and have to smile all the time. It's like, not, <laughs> not only are you alienated, you have to deny that you're alienated, and uh, which causes symptoms. Because what is a symptom? You know, a symptom tells the truth that you cannot tell yourself. So, you know, if you have to pretend that everything's great, you know, it, this, the symptom explodes. You know, the symptom, and of course, we're seeing the explosion of all these interests. I mean, fatigue is a very interesting modern symptom that you could say is a type of protest precisely against this mm-hmm. weaving of everything into productivity. Like, there's no space for gift. Here's the funny thing. If, I've, when friends come to Ireland from America, there's an interesting disconnect. And I had this when I moved to America. It was weird because, and I still do this, and I lived in America for years. I would buy a round of drinks, right? And in America, most of America anyway, that doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense for a very particular reason, which is usually you give your credit card, you put it behind the bar, right? And you pay your tab at the end. So if someone buys a round, it gets very complicated, very weird, right? But in Ireland, everyone buys a round. The way you buy a drink is you don't buy a drink for yourself, right? You buy a drink for everybody. And then someone else buys a drink for everybody. And you might not buy a drink the whole night, but then next week you buy a round or whatever. And we have a very sophisticated, what maybe Levi Strauss would call a zero institution. A zero institution being an institution, but it doesn't exist. It's a civility. It's something that happens, but but no one's enforcing it, but we're all enforcing it. So, for example, if you're if you don't have as much money as other people, when you offer to buy a round, people will say, no, oh, it's fine, I don't want a drink more often than saying yes and if you've got more money they'll say yes more often so we've got this entire system of how to how to do drinks uh, and so when my friend recently came over from Ireland he could not from America he couldn't figure this out it was so stressful at first he was like I never have to buy a drink and then I had to pull him aside and go listen you know you do actually have to buy a drink right occasionally <laughs> you have to find and by the way will you offer everybody will say no because we refuse gifts so you have to say three times he's like okay so Mm -hmm. I have to they'll offer to buy me a drink I have to say no then I have to ask to buy them a drink and then they're going to say no and they're going to say no twice and then the third time I ask they're going to say yes unless I don't have very much money and and so it's it's like yes it's a rule but the the point behind it and every society has it is you have to have what some anthropologists call a gift economy which is you have to have a space within society that is not purely economic, where mm. you don't just buy something, sell something, exchange something, where like you go to a party and you bring a bottle of wine. Now, it's a gift economy because technically, if you never buy a round of drinks, eventually people are going to get pissed off with you. So there is a, there is a certain exchange dimension, but the exchange dimension is, is kind of secondary to the gift the gift Mm. and societies that don't have gift uh, sacrifice is another word for this but do not have gift within them you know it becomes horrific and destructive so again we're talking about the gift as a form of negation because it's a form of giving without any return and I would argue that that's where meaning value uh, love even all comes from this kind of this non-economic this place of privation which is denied you know, by most of us. Hmm. I'm trying to think if, you know, what spaces would be like that. I mean, I can think of, I'm thinking of two spaces where um, I, I'm able to receive. I don't know that I necessarily give, but with with not needing to give anything in return. But 
Um, I mean, we have kids, and so two places we I was go about quite to say bit. with kids. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> two places we go quite a bit are just parks, like playgrounds. Like that's just a place you go. You don't have to pay you pay for it, and you just get to enjoy what's there, what's been put there for us. And then the other is the library. Just uh, what a, a beautiful system, like one of the few systems that's still in place of a building you can go to and receive something that you're not required. I mean, sure, I guess you could say both parks and libraries we technically fund through our taxes. Um, but but I, no maybe that's the closest fee, yeah. that it comes. Mm. Yeah, but even having kids, I mean, having a kid uh, is the most kind of sacrificial thing because they take and take and take <laughs> and even being pregnant like kind of is so painful in your body and causes sickness and da 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 and then maybe when they're teenagers they crash your car and then they they're, and, but there's something about the, the sheer amount of sacrifice that that is connected to to love like it's almost like it's it's you know, to be a parent, which I'm not, um, it's an incredibly sacrificial thing. Now, of course, you get stuff back, but weirdly, there is a, it's a profound set of continual sacrifices <laughs> that you make sure. um, that makes life very, very valuable. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. Maybe now, nowadays more than in, you know, the olden days when having kids was more economical because you needed them to take care of you as you were older. And I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that'd be great if they wanted to do that. Um, we, yes. would, we would receive that <laughs> later in our lives. But um, but yeah, nowadays we, you know, we choose to have children purely for their sake, like so mm-hmm. that they can exist and have a life and we get to get to watch it. Yeah. You're talking to somebody who was up like three times last night. So yeah, yeah. It's, we, we get the sacrifice part right now for sure. <laughs> We've done three month old yeah. Yeah. and then two older ones. I mean, if, if I take an example, like, I mean, a very different example now, but a typical kind of two, two, two neurotics, two, so there's, you know, generally two types of neuroses, uh, which is called obsession and hysteria, um, you know, but these, these are forms of desire. So a typical obsessive is someone who only can desire what's impossible. So they tend to desire a person who is unavailable, maybe married to somebody else or dead or in another country. Uh, and so their desire, while they think they want to get over the possibility, it's actually the possibility that generates the desire. So if they get over the possibility and are actually with the person, their desire immediately dissipates, right? And it's a very pro- big problem for, you know, kind of an obsessive individual. Um, you see it all the time in affairs. If eventually the affairs find out and the person actually goes with the person, as soon as the barrier is gone, because the barrier mm. is the other partner. Oh, if I could only be with you, everything would be wonderful. As soon as the other partner finds out and says, yes, go and be with them, it's a disaster, right? Because uh, mm. it's actually the obstacle. And then in hysteria, mm. desire is often fueled by jealousy. You can only desire what is under threat of being taken away. And so people think, oh, I love despite the impossibility or I love despite being jealous. But sometimes you love because you're jealous, because of the impossibility. And these are two ways to bring privation into a relationship. Because privation has to be in a relationship, which we can talk about in, in a healthy way in a second. But but if it's not there in a healthy way, it will, it will erupt in an unhealthy way. Because there is... This is a difference in psychoanalysis between desire and demand. So in psychoanalysis, there's actually three. I'll mention them very quickly, if you don't mind. We can talk yeah. about them. Yeah. There's what's, what's called demand, desire, and drive. Drive is the most difficult to understand. Um, demand is the easiest. Demand is a kind of want that you see in children. 
you have a, you, it's basically I want something. I want a cup of coffee. I want to be warm. I want whatever. So it, an infant has very basic needs. They cry out like a demand, like I need to be held and you hold them. Desire is a little bit more complicated because in psychoanalysis, desire is connected to privation. It's not just that you want something. You want it because in some way you don't have it. So think about the jealous person as they have their partner, but they think they don't. They think their partner's inner world is with somebody else. You're thinking about somebody else. So they don't have what they have. There's privation within the having, right? Um, so desire, if demand is for an object, desire is for a lost object. Desire is for something that you don't have. That's why when you get it, you often don't want it anymore, right? And the whole of our society, we can desire the new iPhone, whatever, and when we get it, we're disappointed. And then drive, as I say, the most interesting thing, which is the Freudian discovery, is the want for, for loss itself, which is where we actually enjoy our own self-sacrifice, uh, where we, we don't consciously enjoy it, but we unconsciously keep repeating incredibly unhealthy patterns uh, destructive patterns of addictions or relationships where we continue to go out with people who don't care about us. And we're, we're annoyed about that, but weirdly we're only attracted to people who don't care about us. <laughs> so we're kind of, we're trying to figure out, and that's what the unconscious is in, in one way, is the unconscious is the logic of loss. Uh, and that's why you never see it, because consciously you never want loss. Consciously you don't want negation. Consciously you don't want uh, to not have right? You consciously, we, we think we want, but there is a dimension in which desire is fueled by, by not having, by negativity. And uh, this is why, you know, Simone Weil, she, she um, asked a really interesting question. She said, what does the miser lose when they lose their treasure, right? And she's thinking of Aesop's fable, this famous fable where this miser has a treasure buried at the bottom of the garden. And every week, he goes and he counts it, counts his treasure and reburies it. Anyway, this thief sees him one day and in the middle of the night digs up the treasure and steals it. The next week the miser goes back, digs up the treasure, but it's not there, and he starts to cry and scream. And some neighbors come and say, What's wrong? And he says, Well, hmm. my treasure. I buried my treasure here and someone's stolen it. One of the neighbors said, why did you bury it in the garden? You know, why did you not spend it or use it? And the, the miser goes, oh, I'd never spend it. I'd never use it. And then the neighbor picks up some stones and throws them into the hole and says, well, count those. It will do you as much good, right? So that's the parable. And then Simone Weil asked the very interesting question. What does the miser lose when he loses the treasure? Because he doesn't lose something that he's using to buy stuff with, right? So there's, there's not a loss there, but the miser definitely loses something, right? Because he's very upset. And in a way, you can say the miser loses the distance between himself and the treasure. So while he has a treasure, he can fantasize about what he can do with it. He has this fantasy. And a miser often lives in poverty, but they can ignore the poverty of their own depression and their own life while they have the treasure which sustains mm. the this fantasy but mm. what what then Simone Weil does with this is she builds a really interesting thing where she says in a nutshell and and I I'm not quite with Simone Weil on this but I think it's really interesting for Simone Weil I do like this part of Simone Weil is um God is the treasure you can never have that allows you to sustain desire. So if the, if the miser spent the treasure, 
you'd have stuff, but there'd be no desire. If the miser doesn't have the treasure, they've lost it there in pain. But instead, they need a treasure that they can never have, a treasure that maintains a type of fantasy and desire structure. And so for Simone mm. Weil, the universe itself has to have a, an impossibility built into its very structure in order for desire to function. And for her, God is the name for the nothing that sustains desire. So this idea, I mean, it's, it makes a lot of sense, even though it's, I'm still trying to like piece it together in my mind. Um, it's, I, I think, very contradictory to the kind of personal God that the typical evangelical Christian church purports today. One that can be known by scripture. I mean, systematic theologies that tell us exactly what we can know about God and um, that are all based on, you know, many verses that say many different things. If I'm hearing you right, those those are quite at odds, the, these different ideas of God. I mean, essentially opposites. One being, you know, that we can know God and the other is that we can't. Yes. And here, this is interesting. So very quickly, I know you're just clarifying for it, but is that that yeah, that this distinction at the moment, that's very good, is say you've got confessional Christianity, that, that, that the scriptures, for example, give us an insight into the absolute. And then this more mystical approach that, that says, you know, God is beyond all finding out. Now, I'm kind of mixing two together here at the bit, because I've also been saying, but not explicitly, that because I'm actually more the former than the latter, right? I'm, I'm critical mm. of the mystical tradition, right? Um, because I actually do think that there's something in the biblical text that does give us an insight into the nature of the absolute, right? And that's... Mm, tell us that's, more. Yeah, so this is... And so for me, the Bible, it, it, there's, a, there's a moment in the biblical text that I think expresses the, the true nature of reality uh, better than... I almost think it invented... Uh, a con an idea, a concept that prefigures the modern world and that gets us to the heart of reality itself. Okay, so I don't know if you want to, we want to get into what that is. But, uh, yeah. That's yeah. an amazing that tease. Prefigures, yeah, yeah. Nice. let's hear it. Basically, all religions, let's take traditional religions, that we have the idea that we are somehow separated from the absolute. Now, two popular ways that's thought of is, one is reality is an illusion. Uh, so separation is an illusion. Uh, everything is one. And if we can see through the veil of illusions, uh, we will realize the oneness of everything, right? which is more associated with, with Eastern kind of religions. I was going to say, or, it sounds like Taoism a bit. Yes, yeah, yeah. So you very, very Eastern kind of notion. The Western notion is more that there is an ontological fracture, that we are, that's, that something happened. So the, the, this, the alienation is real. It's not an illusion. It's a reality that has to be overcome. Right. So broadly speaking, Western religions, right? Religions of the book. Again, I'm simplifying, but you've got, you know, we're alienated through because of an illusion. We're alienated because of an ontological reality. Um, and, and then religions offer the way to overcome that uh, alienation, to return to a type of oneness that we have lost, either through uh, a fall or through a veil of illusions. What's interesting about Christianity 
is in Christianity, it's not that we are alienated from God, but that God is alienated from God, right? This is a really interesting idea. So Christians don't believe, even confessional Christians, what's interesting about them is not that they believe in God. I mean, through a stone, you know, in today's world, most people believe in God. They believe in the death of God. This is a very, and I actually don't think confessional Christianity has touched the surface of what this means. But what does it mean to believe in the death of God? Um, that's a contradiction, first of all. You know, in one sense, traditionally, God is eternal, uh, you know, immutable, you know, co- yes. you know, cannot die. You know, so this this notion of the de- the, the the dead God, the God that dies, is um, fundamentally radical. And interestingly, mm-hmm. the, the Apostle Paul is the first to see that this has some sort of what well, let's call it salvatory value, right? So Paul sees it as having some sort of importance. Then Luther raises it to a theological meaning, uh, really interestingly. Uh, and then he- Hegel brings it to the realm of philosophy. And then Nietzsche also agrees with Paul that the death of God is a salvatory event that everyone must pass through. So the Apostle Paul and Frederick Nietzsche have this really interesting connection that both of them see the death of God as as a type of salvatory event um, and then for me freud then creates the technology of the death of god and uh i think lacan who i'm a lacanian the the philosopher and psychoanalyst lacan i think develops a technology of the death of god so that that's my genealogy of the death of god but what's interesting about this is um and sorry i'm waffling i'll stop in a second <laughs> um mm, the, the difference between oh good because the difference between emmanuel kant's and Hegel, right? I'm a Hegelian. So Immanuel Kant, who's one of the great philosophers, in a nutshell, he says there is a realm that we cannot know. There is a realm that is beyond our knowledge. There's the phenomenal world, there's the noumenal world. And we can know the phenomenal world, but the world of the noumenal is beyond all finding out. And he says that if we use pure reason, and this is why he wrote a book called The Critique of Pure Reason, because he said, if we try to use pure reason to talk about the existence of God, to talk about the origins of the universe, pure reason brings us to contradictory conclusions. Through pure reason, you can argue that God exists or that God doesn't exist, that the world has a beginning, that it doesn't, that everything is uh, eternally divisible, right? There's the, the universe is qualitatively divisible, or that there is an indivisible dimension at the very core of reality. Those are a few of the ones he mentions. And so Kant says, pure reason cannot get us to absolute reality. Now, in a nutshell, Hegel then says something very interesting, which is he says, well, Kant was almost right. Kant's right that when we use pure reason, we get to contradictions. And then Hegel very carefully said that this was not evidence that he hadn't seen something central to reality he'd actually perceived something central to reality, that reality itself is contradictory, that there is an asymmetry or an antagonism or a not-at-oneness at the heart of everything. Now, in modern terms, in Gödel's incompleteness theory in mathematics, you can say that's the idea that mathematics is contradictory with itself. Uh, Heisenberg's incompleteness theorem in physics, that, that reality is in a superposition, is, is, it, is it not at one with itself. Uh, in biology, the name is evolution, the non-at-oneness of the organism. In politics, it's called democracy, the non-at-oneness of the social body that develops civilization. So there's different names for this non-at-oneness. 
in psychoanalysis is called the unconscious, the non-at-oneness of consciousness, not the Jungian unconscious, the Freudian unconscious. So all of this to say is the death of God is, I would argue, an insight into the very nature of reality, that reality is riven with alienation. So, in, and here's where it becomes important for, for, for individuals is, what the religious person says is you feel alienated, but you can overcome that alienation, buy the right products, do CrossFit, you know, drink enough, pray enough, whatever it is, right? There's all these people. Like I used to live in LA, the most religious place in the world, the Mecca, because everyone's promising wholeness and completeness, how you can overcome your alienation. Um, yeah. now, but the message of radical theology is that you feel alienated. Well, reality itself is alienated. So your alienation is not overcome, it's redoubled. Now, in Lacanian psychoanalysis, it's called separation. So, you know, for the child first feels alienated from the parents, and then they, realizes, they realize the parent is alienated from themselves. In other words, I, I go like, what does my mum desire? I want, to, I want to be the object of my mother's desire. And then you get older and you realize, my mother doesn't know what she desires. I can't be the object of her desire because she, her desire is fragmented as well. But this realization that, that my alienation is within everything, for me, is a salvatory of dimension. And it's the opposite of therapy, mental health stuff, whatever. This is psychoanalysis, because psychoanalysis, the idea is you go into analysis with a problem. Say, for example, you're grinding your teeth, right? And, and a symptom, as I mentioned, a symptom is a contradiction in your being, a contradiction that gives you a substitute enjoyment. So you might bite your teeth, sorry, bite your nails because you want to shout at your boss, but you also want to keep quiet because you want to keep your job. So you bite your nails. You're literally biting your, 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 your you know, what you can use to scra scratch. <laughs> so this is a symptom yeah. that tells a contradictory desire, right? Or if you grind your teeth at night, maybe you want to shout at your partner, but you also want to keep quiet because you do want them to break up with you. So the symptom is you keep your mouth shut in a way that, you know, creates a symptom. So you go in and mm. say you're talking about a symptom and then that symptom opens up that, that actually you didn't want to shout at your parents. You didn't feel that you had a place to speak about your parents. So that contradiction goes to a deeper contradiction and this goes to a deeper contradiction. And in, in psychoanalysis for the neurotic, the cure is when you realize that there's, these contradictions go all the way down and ultimately to be human is to be contradictory. And the evidence of that is anxiety, which is what Kierkegaard says. Anxiety, in a sense, is the affect of not knowing who you are, what you should be doing, how you fit in. But, but we all want to get rid of anxiety. But for Kierkegaard, no, anxiety is the evidence of our freedom. What you must do is find a way to enjoy your anxiety. <laughs> um, anyway, wow. so that's, that's a practical thing. Wow. Okay, something you just said, I think, touched us touched on um, the topic, which we surprisingly haven't gotten to yet, because I think it's a pretty big deal in, for you, which is pyrotheology. Just yes. from what I've learned um, about you, this was one of the top um, subjects that was coming up. A term I had never actually heard before, and, I'm, and it seems like it has something to do with what you were just saying as far as um, contradictions and embracing the challenge um, yes. that 
like anxiety, that kind of a thing. So what is pyrotheology? Did, did you coin the term? Where, what does it mean? Yeah, yeah give so us a little rundown on that. It, it is completely made up. You're saying, I haven't really heard it before. It's just, yep, just made it up. And it wasn't me. It was a friend of mine. I used to run uh, what, I, what it was called, um, we called in, uh, uh, what are, oh, transformance art events. So we, we did two, we do two things. One are called decentering practices and the other are called transformance art events. And transformance art events are liturgical events. So you go into an environment and through poetry and music and art and ritual, we undergo this encounter with the absolute contradiction of reality. And yes, parotheology is a term that I use to describe the theory and the, pra the practice of these ideas. Now, these ideas are out in the world. Uh, there's, a, say, Hegel and Lacan, and a lot of these theories are theories that I'm building on and using. But if, if I have anything to bring to that field, it's that I, I want to form what I call churches of the contradiction. Uh, which are these liturgical gatherings, these congregations built around the death of God. Uh, and, and, and just on that notion of death of God very quickly is the interesting thing about the death of God is it's double. It's not simply that God dies, right? That's just atheism in a sense. Or, well, it's not atheism. That's the interesting thing because theism is God exists. Atheism is God doesn't exist. So the death of, what did I just do there? That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> For those yes. listening along at home, Peter is making hand gestures and but they somehow. are causing a, a reaction on the screen. So you want to go over to YouTube <laughs> well, and find yeah. us over Thumbs there. Yes, go watch brilliant. on YouTube. Thumbs That's what you got to do. Apparently makes fireworks. So. Yeah, whenever okay, I make anyway, a good the point, death of God. <laughs> death of God. So the death of God within Christianity is not simply, well, first of all, the death of God doesn't make sense to most people because either God is real and then God can't die or God is not real and God can't die. So it's either, so it's a metaphor, right? Uh, within radical theology, it's actually taken seriously that, that the death of God captures some actual insight into fundamental reality. What is that insight? Well, there's two things about the death of God in Christianity, not simply that God dies on a cross or whatever, but also that God experiences self-alienation, right? Famously, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, mm. That there is this, this dimension of, of radical rupture within, within the heart of the absolute. So uh, parotheology is about creating a liturgy that helps you encounter that radical self-division within everything and within yourself. And it creates what I call I say, a collective of the, uh, a congregation of the void. Now, I don't, I use the word congregation because I like that term a lot more than community. Because communities are based on shared things. A community is based on, say, shared beliefs, a shared enemy, a shared set of practices, so a shared yes. positivity, right? Uh, a congregation is a group gathered together around a shared loss. So central to Christianity is this notion of Eucharist, which is a meal around the death of God, right? So there is, it's a wake, basically. A wake in Ireland is a, is a mm -hmm. death ritual. So, so God is dead. You gather together and you remember this death. So for me, I'm trying to create these congregations of the contradiction. Uh, and that's what parotheology is. Hmm. Wow. 
Okay, yeah, this of, might oh, seem ahead. this might seem like a a weird angle to take as far as asking a question, but um, I'm as a Bible scholar, and I'm very interested in just the the historical cultural context background of the texts and historical Jesus and all of that, which often can feel like it feels like there's almost two different Christianities. One is this kind of on the ground, like what was actually said and done. And then this other is the more philosophical Apostle Paul type um, Christianity. So I guess, yeah, going from one to the other, like this idea of the death of God is very, if I'm hearing you right, is very um, tied to Jesus being God. And um, especially from early Christianity, like, if there was, because there, there's, it's it's a developing idea. I mean, Bart Ehrman writes about how Jesus became God, and that you know maybe the earliest versions of Christianity, Jesus may have been, you know, unique. That's not there. I mean, it's not any, there. anywhere I mean, it's not from there. yeah, yeah, it's not yeah, it's anything not, you know, from Jesus doesn't just to be a, God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So then, like, how does that affect something like pyrotheology or mystical Christianity if um, if God and Jesus are separate? Yeah, so interesting. So one of the things I'm working on at the moment is I am interested in how this approach, which is the, the Christological approach, because so I'm Christological, um, it connects with historical Jesus, right? And I think that, there, I actually think this can be done. I'm very excited mm, about it. I okay, was very wow. influenced by a book uh, recently by... Um, Richard Boothby called Embracing the Void. He does a very interesting reading on, on Jesus. But putting that aside for one second, um, yes, my work is Christological, uh, as you know, in the sense that it is taking seriously this idea that this notion of the death of God um, captures something of reality. Mm. Um, now, I, and I take this as absolutely true, but I take it as absolutely true in the way that a psychoanalyst takes a dream as actually absolutely true. I mean, if, if you have a dream, I take it absolutely seriously. I'm not a progressive when it comes to your dream and asking what's historical and what's not, right? I'm a fundamentalist in a sense. I take it completely true because it expresses your wishes, your desires, mm. your fears. And, and so for me, what I'm arguing is that this notion of the death of God, which actually I don't think we've we've unpacked even today. I don't think there is a confessional form of Christianity yet. This is a big claim, but I don't think there's a confessional form of Christianity that takes seriously this idea of of the of of reality being fundamentally divided. Oh, can I, by the way, on this, uh, when the Apostle Paul. Uh, at the temple sees this temple that says Augustus Theos, right? Or sorry, Agnostos Mm -hmm. Theos, right? Mm -hmm. And he says, oh, I see you have an altar to uh, an unknown God. God. I will make that God known. Uh, What I like is actually uh, um, Agnostos Theos can actually also be translated as unknowing God. Uh, Now, of course, that's not what it means, but an analyst never cares about what you mean. They care about what you say. It's like whenever (laughs) a lot of progressives held up signs saying love trumps hate. They, what they meant to say was love is better than, you know, what we think Trump is for. But what they were also saying is we love Trump's hate. We're getting so much out of it, right? So you look at what's actually being said. You know, always look oh at what, gosh. you know, what, and which, uh, so psychoanalysts always look at what's being said. So I take, I take this dimension of the text absolutely seriously um, from a theological, from a philosophical perspective. But yes, but I'm completely indifferent to, um, to any of the historical stuff. However, 
I do think that right here's I mean I'd have to unpack this a lot but I'll just throw it throw it in I think if we can say anything about Jesus even if he didn't exist but if we can say anything about Jesus it's that that love uh this idea of love then of the other was central and Mm -hmm. love is interesting and that somehow that was fulfilling the law so if I say, forget about the arguments for and against. Just take that for a second and go, okay, Jesus was about love. What is love? Um, so from a psychoanalytic perspective, love is, Lacan says, giving something you do not have to someone who does not want it. Uh, because in a way, love is, it, whenever you lust after somebody, you go into a, a dating app, it's all about their, what they have that you know you are looking for, right? But when you love somebody, you they evoke your desire desire is your lack right if i desire it's because i don't have something and i desire you and so i'm i'm giving you my lack and the other person then if if it's a mutual love relationship they provide a harbor for that lack they provide a space for that lack and you provide a space for that lack in them and so i think there is a way to argue um that that this that you know whatever we can think of in terms of historical christianity there is something about um, encountering this dimension of the other, of holy otherness in the other, the, what can be called in philosophy the other of the other, right? When you encounter not someone who's the same as me, but you encounter someone who's weird and different and strange, and you're able to make space for that, and you're able to make a harbor for that. Now, the interesting thing is even the most familiar people to us are other. In fact, we know this when someone we've loved all our lives does something that destroys us. And there's something that we want sometimes to hang about with people who are the same as us in all sorts of ways. But even people who are the same as us are other. And not only other to us, but other to themselves. And I think there is a way of arguing that that at the heart of the Gospels, there is um, an injunction to try to remain open to the hurricane that is the unknown other's desire and to try to be receptive to that. And I've just finished producing a documentary. Um, It's a four-part documentary about the life and legacy of Tammy Faye Baker. If you know Tammy Faye Baker, Mm. she was a very interesting woman. The reason why we made this documentary was because she brought together people who would never sit in the same room. Dry Mm. queens and fundamentalist Christians and the gay community and conservatives from Arkansas will all sit around a table and laugh and cry together about the life and the legacy and the beauty and the tragedy of Tammy Faye Baker, right? And she encompassed these contradictions with her own life as well within herself. She was this amalgamation of contradictions. Now, the reason why we made this documentary is because she was someone who could not close herself off to the other. No matter how much she was ridiculed or if people believed it. Like when she, there were these t-shirts of her uh, where it was just makeup splurged on a T-shirt, and it says "I ran into Tammy Faye at the mall." Right, so she w- and she would come up and she would sign these T-shirts. And one time, this is actually in the movie. If you've seen the movie with uh, Jessica Chastain, there's a point where there's these kids who are laughing at her and taking the piss out of her, 
And she goes up to them and she talks to them. Now, I'm friends with her son and I went to see the movie with him. And he wow. said, oh, yeah, I asked him what, what happened and what didn't. And he said, oh, that happened with those kids. But he says, I was there. What happened was it wasn't that she just went up and introduced them. She went and bought them lunch. And they all mm-hmm. went to Applebee's and they all sat down and she got to know them. Because she said, if you're going to make fun of me, at least get to know me. Now, it was the mm-hmm. death of her. Because being open to the other continually is so, so difficult. We want to shut ourselves off from that otherness. So this injunction to, to create a harbor for the other's otherness, for their desire to love, is in one sense you could say an impossible injunction. And it's one that we often close ourselves down to. But I do think there's an argument to be made that that could be connected to the historical Jesus. But I'm primarily interested in the Christological. I am. I'm primarily interested in what does the death of God describe a, a dimension of absolute reality. But that's not about belief in God or anything. That's just saying that reality is, um, uh, is self-contradictory. Hmm. I'm thinking um, about, because you were saying, you know, you're kind of, in progress working on this this whole concept and um i uh, as far as and you said there's no confessional christianity that you know maybe gets it yet or incorporates it yet and i'm you're saying maybe this sounds a little radical and i'm like i 100 percent agree um and listeners of this show especially of our women's series will remember um there's the story of the woman who anoints jesus um particularly the the first version in mark where she anoints him on the head with oil, and then Jesus says, you know, wherever the gospel is preached, uh, what she's done will be told in memory of her. And we kind of have been a little baffled by that because we're like, this story is definitely not told wherever the gospel is pe- preached. Like something about this story Jesus is saying is essential. And yeah. we've apparently missed it because we don't see this story as essential. So anyway, I was like, I should just hand this over to you and say, work <laughs> this into your, your thinking. I mean, because it does also seem like it has that element of giving. I mean, she's, she's giving this expensive ointment to him for you know what the disciples see as no reason very little purpose anyway anyway just let yeah. that stew in, in, and and yes. then if it makes its way into a book or something someday just let me know love you. <laughs> I, absolutely i love that and I, what i definitely want to say to anybody is because i hate the idea that i'm saying that um you know either i or some other group is doing what you know what other people haven't like I would. I want to make a distinction. So the the impossible demand to open yourself up to mm. the oceanic dimension of the other, right? Because everybody's like a TARDIS. If you know the TARDIS and Doctor Who, it's a small, finite object that opens up to an infinite universe. And so, mm. you know, that's what the subject is: a small thing that opens up this infinite world. So, if mm. love is to do that, that that's something that we all struggle with, and we all have to to work with and actually Emmanuel Levinas once once interestingly from a Jewish perspective you know he he said that uh, theism we kind of was basically an openness to the call of the other and atheism as a, a closing oneself off to the call of the other so atheism and theism were not in any way connected to some belief in some substantive non-private other without privation you know omnipotent omnibenevolent whatever it was um a type of posturing towards the face of the other that he said always screams do not murder me now there's that which is eternal the thing that i'm particularly interested in that hasn't been institutionalized at all but is also is the notion of uh 
of inherent contradiction at the heart of everything. I think that that there is no liturgy. Now, not no. There, there's uh, that is lacking. Churches of contradiction are lacking, sorely lacking. <laughs> that's and that's my 500-year plan. Um, I won't be around <laughs> to see it finished, but I'm there for the start of it. <laughs> you can be, you can be the Martin Luther of the, yeah. the Church of Contradiction. Right. Yeah. So I guess like for our listeners out there who are feeling like, okay, this is all great. I am uh, losing something that I had, right? I was, let's just say for 20, 30 years, I was a part of this um, congregation, community of people. Maybe it was a local community of people. And now I started to see some cracks in the system of belief that I had, I started to go like, well, they're, you know, they're preaching that um, most of the stories found in the Old Testament are historical, and I don't believe they're historical anymore. So I have to be out of this. Or they're, they're preaching that Jesus um, was the Son of God, even though Jesus doesn't claim to be, let's say, uh, and we can, you know, get into all that, and that's what we do on our show. But, um, but I, because I don't believe that, or because I'm questioning that, now I have, now I'm out, or now I'm the outsider in this, in this group. And I guess, what I would ask you is, what would you say to these people if you could take your the, from the philosophical angle that we're that we're talking about? How how do you feel like that's helpful to someone uh, who are there are so many now, right? The nuns or the people that feel like n o n e s, right? The ones who feel like they can't be a part of this anymore. They feel like they have to because they're different, because they're uh, they don't just buy it all hook, line, and sinker anymore, and they have. You know, well, I would I would challenge that, or I would say this differently, or I think I believe this now. They they just don't fit in, right? So, what would you say to them? How do you feel like your understanding of um, philosophy can be helpful to those mm. people? Yeah. So, you know, one thing I'd like to do is you know make a distinction between what's a very common idea is that Christianity and other religions offer descriptions of reality so they that's what i in fact that's what i mean by confessional christianity they confess Mm -hmm. certain beliefs right Mm -hmm. now and then contrast that with the idea that uh christianity isn't is doesn't confer doesn't give you a set of beliefs but potentially confronts you with the beliefs you already have right now what i mean by that Mm -hmm. is we you know particularly in the modern world uh, have kind of three ideas about beliefs, right? One is we know what we believe. Uh, two is, um, you know, we like what we believe. And three is we want to maybe tell other people what we believe. But interesting, within psychoanalysis, the ego, and which is mostly conscious, uh, is actually not the site of belief. Uh, it's a defense against your beliefs uh, that actually... We don't know what we believe, right? There's people who don't believe in ghosts, but every time at night, whenever they hear something, they they get scared, right? Or they don't believe their duvet cover is magical, but again, if they hear something, they put it over their head as if it is, right? Um, there's people who, um, you know, don't believe that there's somebody in the cupboard, but er, but every night they have to check the cupboard, right? There's we have all sorts of beliefs. Uh, we may think that we love our parents. And then we have a dream where one of them drowns. You kind of go, well, that is your dream. Like, you know, and you go, like, oh, you know, says, so and like, you know, it wasn't that that dream was forced upon you. It's saying something, it come, it's coming out of you. And maybe you discover, oh my goodness, I don't like my mum. You know, I'm really, really pissed off about some things, right? And the crazy thing is you didn't know that, right? Um, there's, 
Now, once you start thinking like this, that actually our beliefs, we don't know what they are. They're often not good. And three, we wouldn't want anybody to know them. We'd be the opposite of being uh, proselytizing. I don't want people to know what I really believe, right? Um, and then you have this idea, which sounds weird at first. But again, if you just look at the historical Jesus for a second, the little bit that we seem to know is, what if, even reading the Gospels, right, you see this is, what if... Um, it was a confrontation with yourself that happened. So this notion, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, right? That's obviously not about you shall know the truth about two plus two equals four or the truth <laughs> about which stories in the Old Testament are historical and which aren't, right? That doesn't save anybody, right? Uh, so what's yeah. the kind of truth that saves? Well, the encounter with your own disavowed truth, right? The truth that we deny, right? So in, again, in analysis, one of the ideas is through talking, you come to encounter yourself which is terrifying because you encounter dimensions of yourself. Like, oh, I hate myself. Oh, I never got over that person. Oh, like I'll, 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 I'll never get over that person, whatever it is. And, and you think you're fine or I hate myself. I have a friend who, you know, forgot to visit his kids a few times. He's divorced. And, um, you know, three times he forgot to, when he was supposed to meet them. He never forgets to meet me on time. He never forgets. Like, if he was losing his mind, that's one thing. But you start to go, what does this mean? And as we talked, it was like he hated himself. And he didn't know this, but he wanted his kids to feel about him the way he felt about himself. But he didn't know that. Mm. But it, but the knowledge was there. You know, the, the knowledge was there. Because his, his ex said, "What are you? why are you doing this? Do you want your kids to hate you? It's like, yeah, that's exactly what he wants. Right? But mm -hmm. he wasn't able to admit that to himself, and so it arose in a symptom. You know, if you keep forgetting your keys every time you're going to go and see your dad, the forgetfulness means something, potentially. You do want to go. Why do you not want to go? And then what if, what if in the figure, say, of Jesus, you don't actually build much belief about anything. Jesus seemed to say different things to different people, and, it's, you know, and Paul wasn't very interested in the, what Jesus did. But what if what you find in Jesus was... Uh, experience of grace and grace is very important to me because it is a, it's the opposite of self-help um, and it's the opposite of ideology actually so self-help is all about getting you from A to B whatever kind of self-help it is you go like I'm at A and I want to get to B and self-help gets helps to get you from A to B right um, of course self-help doesn't do anything in terms of drive remember i said that sometimes we desire not to get what we want right that mm -hmm. you know if you're not writing the book that you want to write probably you're getting some enjoyment out of not writing it now you don't feel that enjoyment but you're getting something out of the privation so when you're reading advice about how to write a book but you're not listening to yourself and listening to what the writer's block is saying you won't overcome it so what grace does, interestingly, is grace says you don't have to go from A to B. Grace says A does not equal A, right? And philosophy, this is philosophy terms, but A does not equal A. Now, what that means is um, you just have to realize that you are divided. You are conflictual. You have an unconscious. You have all of this stuff going on inside you, hatreds and pains and angers and resentment. All this stuff's going on, and you don't even know it. Radical space of grace is a space where you don't have to do anything and where you experience a radical acceptance. And in, in that, you eventually are able to put words, symbolize what's called the real, in some way, is to put words to, to some of this stuff, right? And that is in, an, in and of itself a transformative experience. 
So the reason why I'm saying this is what you believe about things to do with the Bible or to do with anything, that's interesting. But people, some people, that's what they're into. Some people, that's not what they're not into. That's, not, that's neither here nor there. And if maybe you don't have time to go to university and study that stuff. Christianity, I would say, is less about what you believe. It's more about the how of belief. So my advice is this, sorry for waffling, but the advice is this is, it doesn't matter. Like you're going to go from one belief to another and you're going to think about things and that might change. That's fine. The danger, and I've seen this so many times and I could name names and I won't name names, but I know so many who just go from one God to other ersatz gods. So Mm -hmm. if, for example, you're like, oh, Christianity's not working for me because there's cracks and ruptures, well, I, you know, you might get into commodity satisfaction. You might get into psychedelic enlightenment. You might get into uh, sexual liberation, polyamory. There's nothing wrong with any of those. There's nothing wrong with polyamory. There's nothing wrong with psychedelics. There's nothing wrong with buying stuff occasionally. But if you think that that will overcome the alienation in your life, that say polyamory will overcome the impossibility of monogamy, right? It's like, or, or that, that psychedelic enlightenment will give you the spiritual kind of oneness that you're, we're lacking in your church, or that commodity satisfaction, you know, buying products will give you a type of depth that you didn't get in another way. You're just setting yourself up for another fall. Now, the problem is we think like this. So for people who are deconstructing, my thing is, don't fall for there being another answer. There is no answer. The good news is there is no answer. The good news is you don't know the answer and life is shit. Now, that sounds like bad news, right? It sounds like to say, oh, life is wonderful and you can know the answer is good news, but that's bad news because it just creates anxiety. You never get it. You start to feel jealousy because everybody else on social media seems to have the enjoyment that you don't have. Creates social fragmentation, et cetera, et cetera. But when you realize that we're all castrated, this is kind of the notion of castration, that we are all cut, um, then there is a certain solidarity that can be embraced through the collective of outsiders. And for me, that's what Christianity is. It's identification with the one who is cursed of God, the, the one who is outside. The, the, it's a collective of outsiders, a congregation of outsiders. And mm-hmm. That experience is actually freeing. And so here's the good news. People are obsessed with death, for example, right? So go, we're going to die. And here's, here's one way of answering now. Okay, we'll never die, right? You know, we'll go on forever. We'll live forever. To, and maybe technology will do that. So it's not just a, I mean, most people don't believe it. God will do that anymore, but some people believe that, you know, the guys in Silicon Valley are going to solve that soon, right? <laughs> so we'll live forever. Secondly, the Stoic answer, well, don't worry about it. You know, when you're dead, you're dead. And when you're alive, you're alive, which doesn't hit the really difficult question of the death of yeah. other people. But, that's beside the point. but here's, the, here's the answer. Here's the good news. You're afraid of death. You're afraid of dying. You already have, right? You already have, to be human is to pass through death. There is something about being human, and this is why I'm a big original sin guy, or just meaning original lack. There is something about being a subject that experiences ontological lack. To be a subject is to experience a type of death. You've gone through that crucible, and all you have to do is symbolize it. So uh, this is called primal agony in psychoanalysis, where uh, some people are terrified that the person they're with is going to break up with them, right? This is a common thing. And at night, they're like terrified the person's going to leave them. And they think that this apocalyptic event is going to happen in the future. Generally, what you find is actually they're terrified about something that's already happened. The, the fundamental 
disaster happened in the past, but they haven't been able to symbolize it. And so it's a terror of an event. So the good news is it's already happened. The apocalyptic event that you think is going to happen did occur. All you have to do is begin to symbolize it. Even in, in a very superficial way, a lot of people, their relationships are over, but they just don't know it. And they have to go to a therapist to put words to it. It's not that it's ending. It did end. It ended two years ago. They just don't know. And, and the, through the therapy, you're able to signify the end, like the cat over the proverbial cliff in a cartoon. It still keeps going until it looks down, right? Something can be dead, but, but can still go on until you symbolize it. So all of this to say, the, the, the parotheology, the congregation of the contradiction is about being able to symbolize lack. And actually, that is one of the proper ways of understanding the word deconstruction. Like deconstruction in philosophy is a way of saying that there is an inherent uh, opening in everything that can never be closed off. There's this inherent opening and we orient ourselves to that lack, to that privation, and it is mm. productive. I, I love that. I remember when seven, eight years ago, when I was teaching, planting churches, um, and I started to just think like, wait, what am I, what am I saying? I'm talking about hell all the time. I'm like, I got all this systematic theology. I know of all of it. And yet it doesn't seem like it describes reality. It doesn't seem like people want this when I bring this quote unquote good news to them. And I remember thinking, I need to rethink this, right? So I start rethinking it. And I, and I, I remember just being so excited for when I come to the other side of all this and, I, and I'm just as sure, but in a different direction, right? When I, I, I just pictured this journey of like, I'm going across this bridge and I can't wait till I get to the other side. And I think the the realization and maybe what I hear you saying is in, enjoy that bridge, enjoy walking <laughs> in that, in that uh, wilderness um, of, of unknowing that willing, that wilderness of not being sure, not being able to just nail everything down um, because, and I say this to people all the time who are just beginning a journey of, you know, I'm not sure this all makes sense to me anymore, or I have some questions. Um, just be sure that you uh, are going to be okay not knowing um, and not you're not going to get to some place of concrete again. It's not going to be concrete. It's going to yeah. be different now. Yeah, and here's, the, and here's the trick. And this is where most people don't go with me. So I'm going to say something to you that, that most people will go, oh, I can't go there. And that's totally fine. So the traditional mystical approach is that doubt and unknowing arises because we cannot penetrate absolute reality, right? So there is an, there is an absolute reality. We cannot penetrate it. So we have to embrace a type of, of unknowing. Um, what I'm saying is something different. And can, I, I'll tell, can I tell a wee story? And I think it sums mm -hmm. it up. This is, this, is, this is my preaching moment, right? So this is a story about three people who <laughs> die on the same day. They all die and go to heaven. There is this mystic, there is evangelical pastor, and there's this fundamentalist preacher, right? And as we all know, you have to get an interview with Jesus before you get into heaven. So they're <laughs> waiting for their interview with Jesus. And the mystic goes first. And the mystic's brought into a room, the little meeting signs turned around, and mystic's in there for about an hour, and then comes out shaking his head, laughing, going, oh, I knew I was wrong, and then walks into heaven. Next is the evangelical pastor's turn. He goes in, signs turned around, he's in there for about three hours, and he comes out, and he's distraught. He's crying, oh, how could I have been so wrong? How could I have been so wrong? And walks into heaven. 
and then it's the fundamentalist turn. He gets up with a suit, walks into the room. He's in there for about eight hours. Finally, the door swings open and Jesus comes out and says, how could I have been so wrong? Right? Like, they, I, I knew that, yeah, that was one of the first stories I ever told <clears throat> whenever I started speaking, public speaking. And at, at first, I took the surface reading of that story. The surface reading of the story is, of course, we should identify with the mystic, right? We don't really know ultimate reality and <clears throat> we should be comfortable with that. But what I'm saying now, and the book that I'm writing now, is in defense of the fundamentalist, right? That says in that in the fundamentalist in this story, because what the fundamentalist does is he goes in to this room, and then Jesus comes out. Obviously, says, "How can I be so wrong?" So, what does the fundamentalist do? The fundamentalist re, um, gets God to realize that God doesn't know that God is riven with unknowing and doubt and uncertainty. Now, philosophically speaking, this is Hegelianism because. Uh, as I say, but what, what Hegel would say is that when we ask enough questions, just like the child who says, why, 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 until eventually you go, I don't know, right? Um, and this happens in Job, the book of Job, where eventually God just mm. goes, I don't know, right? Just, just do what I say, I made everything, shut up, right? Um, <laughs> is that, that, that actually this is an insight into reality. So whenever I talked about Augustus Theos, which I actually I never came back to, sorry, um, the unknowing God, what I'm saying is that, that reality itself is unknowing. It's not that doubt is in us, but not in everything else. Doubt is riven into everything. That's a much more radical position. Now, it's a radical position for two reasons. One, it makes a claim into absolute reality. It says that absolute reality uh, is nodded, is contradictory, is symptomatic, uh, that subjectivity is, etc. And, uh, and two, that is, and that acknowledging and embracing the fundamental contradiction is salvatory or curative. It is, a, it is something that, it, that has a transformative, eventual uh, effect, right? Um, so there's basically, all, in a nutshell, there's two ways that you can embrace doubt and unknowing. I don't know, but hey, God knows or nobody knows, <laughs> including mm. absolute reality. Now, that's very, very key. And I say, I, I, I can argue for that at a quantum level as well, and at a level of mathematics, but that, that basically doubt and unknowing is in philosophy, it's called, it's not epistemological, it's ontological. Epistemological mm. unknowing is there's a limit to what you can know because our minds are limited. Ontological unknowing is there's a limit to what we can know because reality itself is infused with unknowing. And the latter is much more interesting. I love that. I love how you uh, gently corrected my uh, the, the <laughs> what, what I give to people, right? And I think that's helpful, right? Um, and yeah, this has been so fascinating. I'm going to have to re-listen to this a couple times uh, <laughs> myself because uh, there's there's so much here, and I think I just I love the the angle that you're coming at this from of like. First of all, we're not throwing everything out, right? I, and I love that when we talk about historical Jesus, you're like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go with that because it doesn't so much matter whether uh, everything that has been said about him actually happened historically, the facts, all that kind of stuff, because of the implications of what this story has meant for society and what it means for people. And so we have to, we have to run with it anyway, is sort of how I hear you saying that let's run with it and let's see what that story does to us. Let's see how we, you know, engage with that and what that means for society. So yeah, what is it about this story that we clearly need or want? Yes. And, and for me, it, it like the dimension of the death of God kind of gets to the core. So yeah, that's exactly it. Is it, why is a story 
preserved? And did this story uh, kind of like introduce in mythological terms truth, a truth? Uh, mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Oh yeah. man, we, we could we could keep going on that. But I, yeah, I feel like that's that is the nugget that is really um, hopeful for people who love have loved their faith, have loved the story of Jesus and are f- afraid that they're about to lose it all is mm. that, you know, because it means so much to you, there's a sign there that you're not going to lose it. You're just going to maybe find it in a, in a new way. Yeah. Um, not in a certain way, but in a way that's still meaningful. How would you like people to find more about you and your, like what's, what's, what are you up to that people might be interested in, in reading or participating in? I know you offer like courses and, so, yeah, uh, so I saw I, that you I, offer something called the Omega course, which I thought was f- hilarious yeah. because my church absolutely offered the Alpha course my um, my whole childhood, which was the intro to Christianity. And anyway, anyway, Omega was like the exit from or something like that. Yes, yeah, so yeah, that's what, right, yeah. <laughs> what should people um, know about you? Yeah, and just the, yeah, the Omega course is fun because we do the same kind of topics, the Alpha course, but but through show th- different. Uh, it does, different positions and then we just enjoy the conversation uh there's loads of free content i've got lots of stuff on youtube that you'll find lots of things i wouldn't read any of my old books i've got a book that i'm working on at the moment that i'm excited about it'll come out in a couple of years lots of free stuff out there wonderful well thank you peter i really appreciate this yeah thanks very much guys i love it i'm gonna be mulling it over for for a long time